And this is Quite Like, a podcast. Hello, listeners, and welcome to uh, episode four of the second series of Quite Like, a podcast with me, Rory Forbes. And me, Tim Dedman. And, and we're, we're actually doing something very exotic today, aren't we? We're, we're on Zoom, which we often are these days for logistics and convenience. But I'm doing a little bit of a Rory Stewart. I'm in the um, Libyan foothills just above um, Tripoli, um, looking down on smoke-filled Tuareg campsites, um, you know, whilst my charity uh, uh, you know, does some good deeds somewhere. Actually, I'm not. Does that mean that you can smell interesting smoke as you worked into the building? I tell you what, I'm in Hackney Central this evening, for for real. We're on, we're on Wednesday evening. We're on Valentine's night, and the most romantic thing Tim and I could think to do, uh, podcast listeners, is you know, abandon our wives. And I have literally abandoned my wife physically, um, and come over to the mainland. I'm in Hackney Central doing some work, and Tim is uh, in a another room in the house chatting to me instead of swinging oh, over fun. his. <laughs> I, I can claim some originality because I'm actually doing this on my phone ah. because, because the means of communication broke down. So I'm, I'm recording it on my most basic device for the first time ever. So the, 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 I'm also smelling the, the campfires of Hackney uh, where there are some very interesting smells that you, you, you kind of recognise as you walk around the town, <laughs> I have to be honest. So I, I do feel relatively... Um, exotic in a Rory Stewart kind of way. Uh, those yeah, of you who are not aware, we don't get too much, many of those smells. We used to get it most pungently when we went to the drag racing at Santa Pod in the Midlands. Oh wow! They have one side which is stands which you have to pay for, and the other side is a massive open bank where the the popular vote you gathers, and depending on which way the wind was blowing, you get these great wafts of um medicinal herbs wafting across picking up the kind of the aero fuel that was driving the dragsters which yeah. made a quite a heady brew yes yeah indeed indeed so so we, we are um being exotic and being um uh, uh flexible in the way we produce this podcast this week which is all very exciting for us um just as mentioned it's valentine's night so uh, have you fallen into the commercial trap of valentine's day tim i believe valentine's day is a commercial construct is that an urban myth or is that truth that it was created by um hallmark cards um to enable them to sell more cards on another occasion it it does sound very likely doesn't it a bit like Coke inventing the modern Christmas. Um, we, we've, we, we've tended to shun the way that prices rise around Valentine's Day. So I, I was going to buy flowers, but I think the, the 12 roses in Morrison's were £20. And I, I, I balked at that. And what we did do and what we've done in the past was try and have a nice tea. So we, 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 we did have a really nice proper uh, three-course tea, which which was a lot of oh, nice. fun. Yeah. Nice. I, yeah. I hear from my oldest son that their tradition is that they go out and have McDonald's, well, which I, I, I do sort of approve of. Yeah, yeah, the, absolutely. The, yeah. The, the, the youngest went, down to, went out to the local Italian, which is far more traditional. With flowers and violins and uh, uh, waiters with long pepper uh, grinders. Well, well in, interestingly... He, he once made the mistake of saying 
that he quite fancied a giant pepper grinder. So for Christmas, Sam and Louise actually bought him and Clarice a giant pepper grinder. And this thing is about three foot long. Wonderful. Um, and, you know, now every time we, we buy him a present, you have to buy a packet of peppercorns because it's going to take the rest of his life actually to fill it up. It's just so, <laughs> so good. That's good. Well, I, I'm letting the side down then because I have neither taken my my wife for a um, three-course tea, nor to McDonald's, nor to a local Italian because I'm, I've just left her alone. Well, not quite alone. We've got family visitors uh, at home with her tonight, but uh, I, I'm elsewhere. So I will have to probably do some um, uh, uh, remedial works over the weekend, shall we say. I think and, you uh, will. I think yeah. you will. Are you going to venture out into the bright lights of Hackney later on? I don't think so. The bright lights of Hackney actually venture their way into this uh, second floor flat of their own volition. There are buses that go past, there are emergency vehicles that go past, there's a a pedestrian crossing right outside the window. Oh, there it goes. Bang on cue. I don't know if his microphone is picking that up. Oh, and a bus has just tooted somebody who was in the way. <laughs> so all of life is kind of experienced inside the flat. It's a, it's a very kind of unusual experience for us who live on a quiet uh, island, a sleepy rural seaside island, Idol, coming up to the big smoke and all these noises. So I don't think I need to venture out to experience it. It takes me back to my first property, which was the second floor flat in um, Aldershot in the old Galen Polden's printing works. Yes, yes. And it was also adjacent to the bus station. Many interesting sites used to occur around the um, bus station toilets and the um, sex shop that was just across the road. But I think the highlight was um, a Saturday afternoon when England were playing rugby, possibly against Scotland. I don't know if I've told you this before. Oh, they have, but, you have but, told me about England playing rugby against Scotland. Yes. But not this particular well, story. Oh, oh, carry on, carry on. On this occasion, I, I was watching the game, and I, I, I don't quite know why or what, but the, the recollection is that I was partially naked. And because I was on the second floor, I wasn't overlooked. Anyway, England inevitably scored the, the try of the century to punish the um, Scots who had to go away and think again and was dancing around the living room celebrating this English triumph and realised there was a double-decker bus parked outside the window with the um, upper floor probably looking in fascination and horror at what was going on in, in the flat nearby, like like you would if you were sitting on a double-decker bus in a queue in the rain in Aldershot. Yeah. Did, did so, you get a round um, of applause? I, I, that's not quite how I remember it. I, it was one of those occasions when you hit the deck as if you were under fire in Libya and prayed that the bus would have moved on by the time you'd stood up. Back in those days, I suppose, there would have been no social media. You know, if that happened yesterday, it would have been all over TikTok halfway around the world and before you'd even picked yourself up off the floor again. I would have gone viral. You'd have gone absolutely, absolutely. I'd have probably been arrested then for, for kind of some kind of indecency, but they're, 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 I think I got away with it in those days. So, um, so that's where we are. That's where I am. Um, I don't need to go out because I have brought myself in a little evening meal selection. There's a lovely M&S food specialist store straight across the road here as well. You have everything you need in these urban town centres. Um, buses. Is this the 15-minute city? It, it could well be. Uh, there's a hospital near here. I know my daughter's GP is not that far away. Um, she's oh, Thank you. 
<coughs> a bus has just tooted somebody. <coughs> there is the Hackney Central overground railway stop, literally a stone's throw. Oh, I've, as I look over my shoulder, a overground train has just gone past. Listen, very- I, I, should, as I should tell you that Rory has been removing his clothes as we speak and he's trying to recreate a moment from about 15 years ago, but with, with it's not Galen- working for me. The Galen Polden Flats. Stratfield House, it was called. What, what this flat is actually vibing is very much, um, and I'm sure Caitlin won't mind me saying this, um, Bridget Jones. Bridget Jones lived in this top of a kind of a Victorian building, which this is, um, a flat overlooking a railway line. And that's exactly what we have here in Hackney Central. Um, Caitlin and Jermaine's flat overlooks um, the overground rail service and buses and so it's just I'm, a I'm wonderful cacophony sure. of noise. I'm not too sure Caitlin and Jermaine would want to be categorised with um, Rennie Zel- Zelviger in um, Bridget Jones, but moving swiftly oh, along. I think, well, Jermaine could be um, Mr Darcy, Colin Firth, and Jermaine Rennie Zelviger. I don't think that's a bad comparison. They'll, they'll, they'll let us know once they've listened to this episode. Who, who, was, who was the love rat? Was it Hugh, not Hugh Laurie? It was... Um, Grant, Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant, no. yes. It no. was, you know, it was. Or was it? Rupert. Yes, I, th- I, th- I think it was. We're having a senior moment, but yes. There was, another, there was another love rat as well in one of the other. No, I'm thinking of The Holiday. Sorry, I'm confusing movies here. Listeners, we must rewind and start this again. I'm <clears throat> The Holiday, a much-beloved Christmas film, which I must admit didn't make our seasonal top three Christmas movies, when which was discussed in the Christmas special uh, of series one. I quite like a podcast. But uh, there was a... A kind of a similar plot line where there was a love rat and uh, you know a charming young um, professional lady who, who was um, smitten, but it wasn't being re- requited. It was unrequited. But uh, I think something similar in uh, Bridget Jones. You're absolutely right. Yeah, all our listeners will be so carrying so their DVD have, collections to listen to watch again. What do we have for our listeners tonight? Well, we have a special interview. Uh, Tim, that you have been working tirelessly for, I have to say, many, many months to put this <laughs> together. And it's it's one of our missions, as our regular listeners will know, to cover island <clears throat> and national politics where, where they overlap. And of course, this year is a general election year. So Tim has been studiously working around and attempting to work around most of the prospective parliamentary candidates for our two constituencies, two new constituencies um, here on the island. And you've had some success with what, one of the candidates who you've been, um, has been leading you a merry dance, I think it's fair to say. I, I think it's been just been a communications problem. Um, I think she was conscious that some un- unidentified male was attempting to stalk her and it was just declining to actually open any of the mail. And heard about the last, Stratfield House bus incident as well. I well, I, th- I think I think you know probably more viral than we suspect. <laughs> anyway, I, I, I was on the ferry last Friday night coming back from my trip to the mainland, and um, I thought well, I'll do I'll do a little chase of the people on my list who were outstanding, and um, she obviously thought, oh, the moment has come to open this mystery um mystery uh, messenger, which she did. Um, we bonded immediately. She saw the 37 other previous messages, um, digested them in an instance and said, yes, let's go for it. Good. So today, go for it, we did. 
Excellent. And who are we talking about? We're talking about Vix Lothian, who is the Green Party candidate for the island in the last couple of general elections, but is now in the post-truth world, standing in the East White. Ah, <clears throat> did you ask her what's wrong with the West White? She said that it brought her into contact with our current MP. Ah, and something to be avoided, she would perhaps be implying. She, 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 well, uh, she'll perhaps comment that on herself in the interview, but... I don't think there was a lot of um, love lost. Okay, interesting. So we have a we have a, a topical political slot for you, very island centric because of course we quite like uh, the Isle of Wight, and um, I think obviously any of the national parties represented here in Ireland will have a national resonance as well. So um, wherever you are listening to this on these sceptred isles, then uh, hopefully there's something for you in here. But but can can I just correct the name? Is it Lothian or Lothian? Lothian. It's Lothian. probably my dodgy phone connection, which is somewhat tenuous. Um, uh, uh, Vix, don't worry. We'll have that corrected for the production. And anything that is written down to be read will have your name spelt correctly. <laughs> we have production values, do we? We do, um, indeed. We have very high production values, at least on spelling. I think, I think our boss at Vexis Radio actually said Lothian. But again, you know, what can you say? Well, would you say Lowry doors or Louvre doors? Um, I can't say that I've ever really had the urge to say either, but I think I would say Louvre. I would say Louvre too, because that is the mechanical um, yeah, action indeed it is. that has been taken. They would tend to move, but obviously in the 70s they were static. But anyway, enough of our rambling. Let's listen to Vix and uh, your interview with her. Um, I'm sure that will be a, a very enjoyable uh, 20 minutes or so. Yeah, what I would say is recorded live in the Wheat Sheaf pub in Newport, um, and we were on the ground floor, so there will be some ambient background pub sound, but, you know, this, this is reality, folks. Is this one of those interviews where I don't need to add any ambient sound effects myself? In oh, I think I think I've provided plenty of ambience on this occasion, Rory. Well, let, let's let's enjoy that ambience and let's leave Tim and Vix to their conversation, and we'll be right back once they've uh, supped their pint. Right, hello, listeners. I'm I'm here in rainy Newport with Vix Lothian, who is the green candidate on the island for the East White. Hi, Vix. Hello. So. Are you going to beat the Tories this year? <laughs> um, well, I hope so. I hope the election's going to be this year. I mean, at the moment, we don't know when it's going to be, do we? Maybe May, maybe November. Um, but yeah, we're working, um, Greens and, and others are working really hard to um, be able to out the um, Conservative candidate um, for the new, relatively new seat of Isle of Wight East. Do you know all of, who all of the candidates are now? Because I know the Liberals were working through it. Liberals I have declared now. Chair and they were working through it. Okay. So, yeah, so the Liberal Democrats announced yesterday, I think it was, that Michael Lilly is the candidate for the East um, and Nick Stewart the candidate for the West. So, as envisaged. What's your, is there any thinking, is there any polling on how the East is going to work? There's never any polling. And even when you've seen national stories saying it's going to be a Labour 500 seat landslide, that's not polling. That's well, it's extrapolation. Extrapolation of data. And I think they um, interviewed about 2,000 people 
you know, yeah. across the whole country. Which um, is why they often get it so so completely wrong. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, it's going to be a fascinating election, really, isn't it? Um, you, you flip from going massively confident, we're going to have a huge Labour landslide, the Conservatives are going to be obliterated, to well, what's happened in the last week with, um, you know, trip hazards for Keir Starmer and the way in which the media massively wants to um, take advantage of that. So, yeah, I, don't, I think it's very difficult to predict. I think I think that they have laid a lot of trip wires, which they've tried nimbly to, to avoid. Yeah. But, but, but equally, um, they've been reversing away from some policy decisions around, you know, largely around money, which yeah. kind of overlap with the green agenda. So in a way, it defines yourselves better that they are having to back away from those a little. Yeah. And, and since the um, the announcement of the £28 billion pounds of the Green Investment Fund isn't going to happen, that when Labour Party made that, I've had a couple of media interviews about that from people saying, well, this is a, you know, a massive um, opportunity for the Green Party here to be able to put forward how they distinguish themselves as different to the Labour Party. Um, that's on many different accounts. That the difficulty is going to be the national story is going to be Conservative versus Labour. And in that, the Greens have got to um, try ten times as hard to get heard. It, it's a, it's such a quandary because I was talking to somebody yesterday about proportional representation, mm. and I, I I sort of grew up thinking it was poor because it, it meant that you didn't get strong governments. Yep. I then through my middle age, kind of drifted towards it and think, well, actually, this, this is so much more democratic and it, it must be better and consensus surely is the way to go forward in a modern mm. democracy. Then, in my relatively old age, I see the rise of the far right in Europe getting such yeah. a strong foot. So you in the Germany, you, you, you've got, I think it's the AFD, getting 30% of the vote. And yeah, that's and in the Netherlands scary. as well. Well, even in Sweden, you know, so, so some of these sort of bastions of the liberal left of you know, it's there and proportional representation does what it should do. And if people vote for them, it gives them a democratic voice, a big one. But arguably in our um, first-past-the-post system, although we don't have a, you know, BNP party, which has been, um, you know, has the advantage of proportional representation, we have a Conservative party who have launched even further to the right. So although it seems like a um, the, the Conservative party themselves have become that umbrella for the right... I, I, th I think so. But then, you know, you're seeing that the young people are pretty much turning away from them, whereas continental Europe, to keep boys, there's a strong drift towards the right. Yeah, I did. Whereas in this country, that's not seen to happen. Yeah, it's yeah. Good for our young people, I say. I think, though, that our democracy should be have a diversity of voices in it. I mean, that argument of PR, you know, if we had it, I think if we had it, the amount of votes for the Green Party would mean we'd have 20 to 30 MPs, but it would also mean that you UKIP, as it were, um, five years ago, would have about 50 to 60 MPs. But then we would be having accountability, we'd be having debates in a, in a proper, organised manner in Parliament, rather than what we've seen um, in recent years, um, after the referendum really, or on the lead up to it, is, um, is that discourse happening in sort of culture wars and people getting more and more angry because they don't have representation. So I think that if you want to have PL, you've got to accept the pluses and the minuses, but actually even the minuses would actually help us as a nation to come together more. I think 
think that's well argued. But perhaps part of the problem is we don't seem, because you talked about the press earlier, there doesn't seem to be a, even a national appetite for the debate, which is almost more worrying in itself. The debate of PR? Yes. Mm. So do you see that playing out in the press or in Parliament? <laughs> not really, because they're, they're, it's Turkey's voting for Christmas. Well, yeah, and it's not very exciting, is it? It's not the sexiest policy to say, you know, we will have it, electoral it, reform. But on it's the... fundamental, of course. <laughs> it's absolutely fundamental. And the failure of our democratic system to be able to listen to those voices is having repercussions in um, in all branches of life because we don't have a, we have a system that only us and Belarus have. We, the whole thing seems to be getting more angry mm-hmm. to me. In my so I'm sixty ish, and you know the whole thing seems to be far more charged. I was listening to the radio this morning, and shop workers were talking about the problem of shoplifting, but they were also saying how people are, are angrier now. Yeah. I think because some because of some of those problems you've referred to, that's part of it. We just seem to have become an angrier nation. I think you become angry when you can't see how things are going to improve. You know, the angry, the anger is coming from um, either you know a disconnect from there being solutions, and the world is very complicated. This globalized world of of conflict and economic, um, you know, chain of global impacts means that we have less autonomy than we used to have so it's really important that in the coming election and with parties are offering hope and not the playing on this anger i think that the the divisiveness of brexit whichever side of the argument you're on has has some and some politicians i think have encouraged that and built on that which is going to take a very long time if it's even possible to, to break down we, we've gone very deep very quickly what about some of the some of the green key points that we should be talking about for our listeners either with an island relevance or at a national level well um to add on to the the argument about a green investment fund i mean the Greens are arguing really for what they would argue are common sense policies. So the amount of investment that we put into um, energy, insulation, transport, all of those that are going to reduce our carbon emissions would create jobs, would mean that we would pay less money on our energy bills because we'd be properly insulated. Um, the Greens are offering a um, opportunity for whether we get 20 green MPs or two green MPs, that you can make it clear to the parties that this is something that you support. Um, Greens are not just about that, though. So um, the cost of living crisis, the the, the social and uh, the inequality crisis, the Greens got lots and lots of policies about education and transport. And I go around the country speaking about our education policies, which, again, are quite distinctive. From I was going to say, I, I know that you were the lead voice on, on education. So, mm. so what are the kind of principal planks of how would things be different if, if the Greens could exert more power? <laughs> um, well, in the way in which our education is structured, so um, starting age for young people, um, we've been getting younger and younger and younger in terms of um, uh, having formal education, so children sitting in rows and stuff in classes rather than a focus on, on play and, and exploration and working that way. So the Green Party policy is for sort of school um, starting age to start closer to like it is on the continent at the age of six or seven. Um, the uh, remove away from testing being a prime focus. So at primary school, there's a SATs test and then at um, secondary school, the GCSE um, exams and schools are massively judged on those. So all their resources go towards those rather than to all those other wonderful things that make a childhood great. 
and form us into the adults that we are. Um, the way in which we have our schools, a lot of them increasingly run by academies, which are um, organisations quite often which are um, centred away from where the schools are. So rather than the local council being responsible, it's now these academy trusts responsible. So the Green Party policy is against that as well. Um, but also, on a more fundamental level, what is our education for? You know, and the challenges that our young people are going to face in terms of the jobs of yesterday are not going to be there tomorrow. So have that level of resilience to be able to meet um, the climate crisis and to be able to educate young people to have the, the engineering skills as well as the food growing skills. Um, a lot of it is therefore to change the curriculum. Um, I'm not assuming we're going to get a green government that's going to put all of these things in a radical change, but certainly the opportunity will be there for the next parliament to have um, those green voices which are going to be able to um, speak out on behalf of the children and the teachers about how it's going to work in those schools. It is about getting that voice, isn't, isn't it? Mm. Because you're successful, and a bit like the Lib Dems, really, successful at the local level and getting voices into councils and yeah. getting representation. And it's just that the, the top-down bit is so much harder to crack given the first-past-the-post na yeah. nature. It's interesting that, that quite, quite often... On the continent, we see more effective change through with because of the, the federal nature of government that they can actually do it better through the city city level grassroots yeah. upwards than actually from the national level downwards, which is always the hardest bit to sort of resolve. Yeah, and having that sort of devolution and local accountability is really important. And I think in um, recent years, I think we felt certainly on the island when we've had the um, public finance initiatives of Island Roads, and we have the um, private organisations running our waste. Um, it feels like we don't have that level of accountability in the way in which local government is structured in the UK. Mm. So I think you, you are a teacher as well. Mm. Yeah. So, so you, I can hear the passion bubbling over. So, so what are your subjects? Do I see geology? Yes, yes. I teach in Newport. I teach a, just A-levels mainly, um, although I teach um, key stage three history. Um, so history, classical studies, geology are my subjects. Uh, and I think I've seen some... Um, geology walks around the, the wonderful coastline that we've got. <laughs> yes, at the walking festival back in October, I um, led a geological and historical walk um, through chronological time from Yaviland um, up over to Whitecliff and to Braiding. My wife, my wife would be absolutely fascinated. The, the whole sort of archaeology and geology thing is a real interest of hers. So uh, if you do some more, I can see her <laughs> wanting to leap on board, actually. So... I mean, how does that fit, bringing it back to an island context, mm -hmm. would it, uh, how does that fit with the, um, the landslips we've had recently? Because there's kind of a, a big Venn diagrammy overlappy thing there. Oh, huge Venn. I mean, obviously the geology of the island means that we're more and more um, vulnerable to these landslips. And we've seen over um, in Ventnor and also the military road about how it's going to have real budgetary um, impact on us to be able to repair and what's happened with the landslips and the landslips are a, a direct result of the amount of rainfall that we've had and the way in which our rain is now falling. I was at a meeting on, on um, the other night about the sewage overflow and the sewage spills that we have on the island and we have more of them and we were talking there about when rain falls now it tends to fall 
a lot at once and the impact that that has on our roads. Um, the Green Party uh, have policy that local councils should be able to access a central fund to be able to um, directly deal with the impact of climate change. So for, for us, I think it's going to cost hundreds of thousands of pounds extra to be able to um, just even to fix and patch up some of the landslips that we've had, never mind rebuild whole new roads. So this shows why taking um, important significant um, steps to um, limit the temperature rise throughout the century, which green policies would do, will actually save us money here. Yeah, uh, it, it's difficult to sell, I guess, that as a... I, I mean, it, <laughs> it's over it, decades, I, I totally isn't it? I agree. It's just it's, it's hard to digest that down into why does my... But a geological my, my time food, scale, we're talking of hundreds of millions well, it, of years. And it's, but it's about a sort of a clicking time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, we've been coming to the island, as I've said, for 20, 30 years, and... You know, I can re I remember the St Lawrence mm. landslip, yeah. and you know all the plans to get the road open. And in yeah. fact, my fellow podcaster almost bought a house in St Lawrence, yeah. but the bank wouldn't, I think, give the mortgage because they felt really? it was too high a risk. Now mm. that the house is still standing, but you feel that it, that's almost like a roll of the dice, and it could have been them as much as anyone else. Now mm. the undercliff there has never reopened, and it's a lovely walk or cycle through yeah. Tonighton. And you know, I know there's a lot of people worried that. Bond Church could go the same way. Mm. Phil, Phil Jordan seemed to be a little more optimistic the other week when I spoke to him that there might be a better outcome, but it Good. is very close to the to the end. Yeah, I mean the difficulty with the with the um, St Lawrence one. Well, it's easier because there was at least a road going through Wetwell that was parallel to that road. The difficulty with the um, Bond Church one is that you have to go all the way back and through rocks all around. You know, it's it's not um, not as parallel or anything like that. So I really do hope that we are able to open a road to traffic. Well, definitely. I mean, because there's lots of families who go to work in Shanklin or yeah. children who go yeah. to school. And it, as you say, it's, it's ridiculous. You know, they've gone from four roads to two. So, yeah. Like I was on the other side, on the military road. I, used to, I lived on the military road for seven years. Um, and what was it, 15 years ago when, it, when the traffic lights were put at the, one of the pinch points where the road was falling or the, the side of the road is falling into the sea. Um, I've been concerned about it since then. But the military road, again, you have the middle road, which runs parallel to it. So it's not as important as um, the area near Bonchurch. Yeah, and I, oh, I suspect that the actual traffic statistics are probably not that different. It's just that mm. one is very impactful, whereas the other is almost not a tourist road, but it, but, it, but it is very attractive for people looking to have oh, that, that, that glory. And I'll still be able to get access to that, you know, with walking and running and cycling yeah. and riding. It, but it will require um, a change in our in our mindset and view about that part of the island. It will, I mean, as, as a geologist, do you, do you think we really should just let nature take its course? Or I, I wonder how you balance, because as you say, you, 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 you take a million year view. Yeah. I mean, and, and actually, the, you know, the, the, the life of a road, I guess you could shift it, I don't know, 20 metres inland and it will buy you. 20 years, right, years. 20 years so that's not just that's from an economics yes. point of view if you're an economist you'd be going no um, from a geologist point of view I don't really have a problem with having um, roads and, and so on it's part of the A-level course is looking at mines and tunnels and, and um, engineering geology the problem there is the landscape it's an area of outstanding natural beauty yeah. it's one of our, our biggest plus points to build a 
a, a viaduct or a bridge or some sort of motorway style infrastructure is just not suitable. I, I travel to the Midlands for my work once or twice a month, every month, and I go go over through Twyford Down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I can remember, I'm old enough to remember the the, the you know the, the planning debate and the, yeah. the very very powerful arguments about not to do it and yeah. whilst it is an extremely useful piece of road it's clearly a hideous piece of um engineering in the wrong place yeah it's enormous isn't it well it it, it just it ruins you know what, yeah. what was something quite special and you feel it's in the same sort of category that's even before the kind of the parties with the military road get around the table to have a constructive discussion i think it's about balance isn't it and it i is. think the, the the green party agenda is also about that balance it's not we must put everything waiting on wildlife and nature because like the biosphere, the Isle of Wight is a biosphere and that's not just about protecting wildlife and nature and, and the landscape. It's about humans interacting with it and getting that balance right. So it's a case of carefully balancing out the needs of us with the needs of the natural landscape. Does that flow over into things like power generation? So most of my career was with National Grid. Mm. Um, so it's been fascinating to watch how the generation of power has changed in my lifetime and you know there's a lot more um, new capacity coming coming on from renewable sources but yeah. I'm, I think I believe that nuclear power probably has to play a bridging role in in enabling us to get from where we are to where we need to be in the future I mean what's the green view on that um the green view wouldn't that is not pro nuclear at all but that's because there's a lot of green um foundation of the green party in the campaign for nuclear disarmament um, I understand what you're saying about bridging us to getting to where we need to be with a, a low to zero carbon um, energy source like nuclear. But the danger is it doesn't become a bridge, that it becomes something we rely on. And that's the same argument with getting um, uh, local um, you know, UK oil and gas. And we say, oh, it's a bridge so until we get to um, relying completely on, on turbines and solar and hydro. But it doesn't become a bridge. It becomes something that we we are reliant upon. I think that's the danger with opening new nuclear. I, I don't disagree. I mean, the pragmatic problem as well is that it takes us about 30 years to, to build yeah. something that should take seven, eight, nine years. Whereas putting up solar panels and wind turbines is a lot quicker than that. It is. From a grid perspective, though, collecting distributed power is very diffi difficult. Yes. Because that's so, not what the system was built for. Yeah. But, but, but that's why you've got having tidal barrages and places like that in one place that is another way you can look at it too agreed right i mean we've talked quite a bit already why don't we just take a short break and we'll come back and do a little more in a second we've taken a short break there from uh, your your conversation was that to refill your pints tim have i have i got your beverage choice correct we were actually on tea um, but it's always interesting because, you know, I, I offer a drink where appropriate and I would probably mirror whatever the interviewee was drinking. So yes. if the request had been for a pint of stout, I would have um, matched up. But we were both on a tea, which was actually about the cheapest cup of tea you can probably buy in Newport. And you got um, uh, a Lotus Biscuit as well. So Oh, in, in the little wrapper, the individual... Yeah, she she yeah. Had, she had mine because of my obviously my body is a temple, but um, <laughs> it, that seemed to put me in her favour, which is good. Can, can I say one thing about those individual lotus biscuits? We're never allowed to eat them. I have to put them in my man bag and save them up for my granddaughter and my grandson, but particularly my granddaughter who calls them coffee biscuits because they are, they are universally available wherever you get a, a hot beverage these days. 
Is that why your bag bulges so much? Indeed, I am absolutely bulging with coffee biscuits. <laughs> it's a lotus. <laughs> but I think that etiquette extends to all manner of meetings, doesn't it? You know, you're mirroring your interviewee, but we also have the etiquette to follow in business meetings and other kind of interactions. You know, you, you do tend to follow it. Who makes the decision to go for a beer at lunchtime um, or just have a glass of water or a cup of coffee? These are universal challenges that the human species has yet to resolve completely and wholly. In, in my old industry, being being somewhat old, I, I've kind of crossed the Rubicon. When I started out and first started going to formal meetings with external suppliers, even in the internal restaurant, you used to get a jug of beer or a sort of a small carafe of wine on the table in-house. Wow. And by, by by the end of it, you know, it was it was an alcohol-free environment. Yeah. Most of the sites back in the day would have a bar on site. Um, the one the one in Guildford used to be called the Pylon Inn. <laughs> I love that. I love it. Which, which is pretty good. Which is pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Um, but 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 by the end, it, it was completely dry. And um, it's interesting, you know, how culture changes. Yeah, I can absolutely. remember. I can remember cigars in the office when I started. Mm-hmm. Young man, they, young man, you've they, done very well. Come and have a cigar. Mm. They then retreated to the top of the um, stairs, so you could smoke in the well. You couldn't smoke in the stairwell, but you kind of got away with it. And then, yeah. of course, they're now banished to some little bus shelter somewhere beyond in the car the park. <laughs> yes. But that's an interesting segue to some of the conversation points you were having there with Vix. Uh, you know, being an, you being an ex-national grid employee and her being a Green Party candidate of long standing, there must there must be, and there clearly was, lots of uh, intriguing dynamics in the conversation there. Yeah, we talked a little bit about where she stood on nuclear power, and she made the point that because many of the members of the Green Party, I think, used to be in uh, sort of CND and the various offshoots it, it was politically quite a different difficult thing because um a lot of the thinkers in the kind of green space accepted sort of through the 90s and the 2000s that nuclear played a role in transitioning from a carbon-based economy to to, to a renewable based economy and you know from the grid point of view the problem is distributed transmission, which is what you have with renewables, so lots of little sources of generation, yeah. is not, not what the grid was designed for. Yeah. You know, it was designed for large coal-fired nuclear and a small amount of oil-fired generation. So they've, they've had to produce you know, a, a very fast change, building you know, a new engine for the plane in flight, which they're doing, but it, it's not something that happens over a year or two, it's like a 10 or 20 year project. Mm, which of course. So, so, so we riffed, that we, we riffed yeah. a bit on that as we've heard. And I think we then move on in a second to um sort of the automotive world. Oh, interesting, interesting. Well, I mean, let, let's, without further ado, let's release the handbrake on the interview and zoom off into part two. And then we'll, we'll meet up again at the destination in a, in a couple of minutes. 
So we're back. Um, we, we perhaps should just finish off on some more island issues. We've talked about landslips and we've talked a little bit about education. What do you think are the other key items for the island debate in the election? Well, I think if you're going to talk to anybody on the street about that, they'd be talking about ferries. Yep. And um, and the level of infrastructure and certainly um, our towns, especially in the east, the regeneration um, of, of, it's not just Sandown. It's ride. It's all of those. Um, there's areas across the bay where um, there needs to be a concerted effort to be able to regenerate, especially for young people. But yeah, ferries. Ferries, I think, is incredibly important. What do you think? What would be the green way forward? If if you had that magic wand and pixie dust, what what would you do? Um, well, that's that's different to what you'd actually do as an MP, isn't it? So you wouldn't have a magic wand. I mean, in a, in an ideal world, we wouldn't have um, privatised the ferries in the 1980s at that level, with especially even worse than we did with the trains in the 90s, where at least they had, um, you know, particular regulation and that they had to adhere to. We just let our ferries go in the 80s to the Wild West completely privatised um, and so we don't have a basic minimum standard of um, you know frequency cost um, and that for for us so now if you want to go out to, to Portsmouth in an evening you've got to finish your evening sometimes at 10 o'clock um, that's not conducive to go to a gig to the theatre any of those things you hope you're granted much worse than it was 20 years ago so in a magic wand we would have a, a national accountable ferry system that's not what we're going to get overnight um, and certainly um, not with a Conservative government. I think in Scotland as well, we do actually have that in place, don't we, where some yeah. of the highlands and islands actually do have well, at least heavily subsidised fer- yeah. ferries because that's the only way the community And that's survives. the other thing, yeah. Sub- so you've got nationalisation, subsidies and a level of accountability from that so you don't get your subsidy unless you have a basic standard, um, but a, a public service obligation which we, don't, which we don't have. And that's for, it's not just for cars anymore either, even for passengers, some of the passenger ferry costs are huge at the moment. Um, definitely, definitely, yeah. I go over regularly, so I'm lucky that I can do a travel pass. Mm. But without that, some of the prices would be prohibitive. And you yeah. know, for people for hospital appointments and so forth. Uh, hospital appointments, young people, yes. working people, and people with family on the mainland. It's a real. It's become an even bigger issue. So I, I'm actively involved in the um, White Link Users Campaign Group. And have been supporting them at the various um, events and also the research that they're doing. That's really important. We chatted to Bronwyn uh, around mm. Christmas time, and clearly the group is making some progress. There yeah, was, there they've was had some, some real good wins. They, they, they have, and I think there's a good example. And I guess the the, um, uh, the military road group have probably seen. I'm sure there's some crossover, but they've seen what you know the public voice can do, yeah. and seen White Link be, being prepared to make some commercial compromises. It'd be nice if they go a bit further. Yeah. Things like the sharing the travel pass is a good start, yeah. but you've got to be living in the same household. And so I think my, my boys were both thinking they might be getting cheap ferry travel. <laughs> and my wife was thinking that's great because we'll see more of them. But um, but then White Link are a private company that are serving, not even serving shareholders, are serving their investors. We were a pension pot for them. So there's only so far they can go in terms of the way in which our, our national government uh, and, and legislation allows them to go. Which makes it a structural problem yeah. that has to be solved from the centre. Yeah. I think yeah. we both, both completely agree on that. So we mentioned MPs a few times. What would happen if you won? In the East um, White. I'd have to quit my job. Well, what happens <laughs> if the, the returning officer stands up <laughs> and goes through it? And you, what would you think? What would flash through your mind? I'd be wondering, well, have I got other green MPs across the country to work with? I mean, uh, the way in which um, 
a lot of green politicians work is collaboratively but at the same time Caroline Lucas has been in Westminster doing that job by herself for the last 14 years yes um, now when I say that she's got a good team around her and we also have two members of Greens in the House of Lords as well and I go to Parliament but I was there um, in December with my students but I was there in October with um, Baroness Jenny Jones who showed me around and I sat in the gallery and I, I had a cup of tea in Parliament and um, so we're used to doing that um, there was a, a group of us potential Greens so there's about a dozen who regularly go to Parliament and, and meet like that so I don't think I feel as daunted as I would have felt five years ago um, yeah I feel I've, I've done a little bit more um, a customization. It's a good answer. So, so would you? Would you? I don't know. Travel over and stay up midweek and then come back. Or yeah, I mean, my family's still here. I've got three boys. You know, I'm, I'm, and I'm parenting them by myself here. So, um, but now the the eldest is about to go to uni. So, um, hopefully, fingers crossed. So, I'm in a position now to be able to be much more itinerant. So, yeah, I would. I would want to base myself here much more often yeah i asked richard quickly to say and he came up with a very similar answer after looking, looking yeah yeah looking after looking horrified at the thought that it, it might actually happen and um yeah yeah because it when you've had somebody who's been been in been in the role for a while if you're the, the plucky outsider who's eroding that majority yeah. the day could come so but i tell you what i bet richard's getting this as well is um, you start to sense a mood with people when you meet them. And the way in which um, there's a lot of positivity, I think, about those of us who've been around speaking out against Conservative MPs on the island for a while. And that scares me, (laughs) in a way. It's really lovely when people come up to you and say, really hope you're going to win, or what would happen if you win, and, and that lot. But at the same time, it's quite terrifying, but it should be. You know when your heart beats when you're about to publicly speak? It's like that, but it's going on for like a year of being prepared for that moment. So obviously I get out talking to people for the podcast and just generally, and I, I sense a real mood swing and i think there's also an uncertainty how the division of the island into the two new constituencies because yeah. there's there's no you can't project so much on, on historical data but there's a lot of feeling i think that it's time for a change yeah and if you look as well at those projections based on the 2019 election data that was a world away 2019 that was a referendum um, that was an election which is like a referendum well, on it brexit was. it was and it was before the pandemic it was before we've seen frankly the level of bordering on if not corruption that we've had coming out of the pandemic that the government has just allowed to go through you know the michelle moans of this world the, the millions of pounds um the the um you know the partying the you know three prime ministers so much has happened in the last four or five years that i think it's very difficult to project from the past it's really a nice opportunity a, a, a once in a lifetime opportunity with the split into two constituencies to be able to do things differently i, I agree how, how did you choose or were you just chosen and pointed between East and West? That's really interesting, actually. So originally, I was selected. I've been the Isle of Wight candidate um, for the last few elections. Um, but when it split into East and West, originally, I was living in West Wight. So I've lived in um, Bryston, Freshwater, Tatnall. Mm-hmm. Um, so the West is my area. And then they shifted the boundaries so that West oh, took in no, East Cows, yeah. which is where um, Cameron Palin, who's um, yes. you know, council of the, young council of the year um, at the National Association of Local Councils, he lives in East Cows, and that's really his main domain. So I was like, well, okay, I will shift into the East. But the... 
And I've had some of the people saying to me, um, three, four of them saying, why are you going in the West Vix? You should be going into the East. And the more you look at it, Ventnor, Sandown, Shanklin, Ride. These are areas with some really interesting um, cultural, economic changes happening in them. And there are areas that, frankly, successive MPs on the island have ignored. It tends to be, oh, we'll talk about cows, we'll talk about the wonderful West White, we'll talk about Newport. And those other areas in the Bay and the East have been forgotten about. I think you're right. I, I think the dynamics of the constituencies are fascinating. I, mm. if, if you're a bit of an, you mentioned nerds, and I, I'd be really interested to, just to, just from the, you know, seeing how the numbers split, split out. And I, I think there is an opportunity for change. The only thing that's, um, that I wasn't, I was surprised by is actually looking at the demographics. So I would have thought that the East was younger than the West, but because the West has got Newport and so much new housing is in Newport it's and young families, that actually means that, and then in the in the East, you've got you've got lots of young people living in Ryde, Ventnor, and you've got other areas with lots of bungalows where yeah. you've got an older population. So they balance out quite a lot, actually. Um, it's not this idea that the West is privileged and the East is not. And, and that, it's more balanced. It's in discussion. That, that's the line that I started to trot out when I spoke to Labour and spoke to the, 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 Lib, the Libs. But they both pushed back and gave an, an analysis far closer to yours that actually mm. it's much more leaven than you think. Yeah. And you can't just assume landed gentry in the West. And that, you know, no, the which, West which is I cows, saw. East cows and, and Newport. Yeah, yeah. vast majority of the West. Yeah. So I, I live just, just on the, I mean, we're in Rookley and we are literally on you the line. on the line, yeah. We're, we're just in the West, I think. Yeah, you so. are. You are. But we might have the opportunity to um, have a historic and, moment. And this idea of having two MPs to the island, I mean, it's not the first time, is it? We had the Rotten Boroughs. Back originally, of, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it'd be really nice to see two MPs, whichever party that they are, to be able to work together, you know, in those areas, you won't have to pick and choose a, a MP that you will be able to, both of you can work together on some of those key issues for the island. I think that I think that's particularly with just the island nature, mm. working together and working with the council, mm. I, I think would be so profitable. Whereas, you know, Phil Jordan last week commented that interaction with the MP wasn't particularly as good as it could be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but there, there are... There are I, quite like I, I think it's really important to say that that there will be a lot of people who will, won't want to vote in this general election because they believe that all the MPs are the same, all the candidates are the same, and they're all not going to pay attention to us, and they're all about Westminster and appearing on GB News and stuff. I think it's important to say that not all candidates are the same, whichever, you know, there'll be a group of us standing in both sides. Um, we're not all going to be like that, and we're not all going to ignore the council in that way. I think that is a terrific point, and I, th I think one of... Back to our challenges about the British and being angry and politics. I think the centre, centre left, whatever you want to call it, is much more reluctant to push back and be loud yeah. than, than the right, who are very strident and just press on whether it's the truth or not, and tend to tend to sort of dominate the agenda mm. and I, I think it's, it's like Brexit you know mm. the, the Remain campaign wasn't nearly brash enough loud enough or you know it pulled its punches in so many ways whichever side of the debate yeah but what the Remain from. campaign did do and it's quite interesting that we're here so in 2016 I had a meeting in the Reach Leaf here and we um, I, it was Conservatives were there Liberal Democrats were there Greens were there Labour were there at this meeting to look at how we were going to run the Remain campaign and we we did work collaboratively then 
and I'm sure with many other issues we do the same. And I think that needs, but that's something that needs to be hap happening visibly. Yeah, exactly, uh, uh, exactly. Uh, you know, be because we, we're good at getting things done in a quiet way, whereas the opposition yeah. perhaps are, are better at using the levers of power in, in a brash way. And yeah. a lot of people, unfortunately, if you, they hear it often enough, they believe that it's probably true. Yeah, and, and it's shifted our political dialogue. It, well, that's the problem. It's yeah. the whole thing, is the, the centre has shifted to the, to the right, I yeah. think. Probably coming to the end of our time, it's been absolutely fascinating. I wanted to ask you, I think you're connected with the Apollo Theatre. Yes. Tell us a bit about the Apollo Theatre, because yes. we've not, done, not spoken to anyone from the theatre yet, but I'd like to. Oh, well, they had their 50th anniversary a couple of years ago, so I got involved in, I was in a production of Oliver, which was a complete sellout um, with my, my son. And since then, I've been regularly... Um, volunteering there, running the box office, um, you know, teas and coffees. Um, I was in a production of Romeo and Juliet. In that September. was fairly recently, wasn't yeah. it? I, I think I saw a little bit on social media. Yeah, that was part of this season. Um, and my son is involved in the youth theatre, and they're going to be producing a play on Saturday as part of the Aldwight Story Festival. So all of these things interact yeah. um, with it. But the Apollo is fantastic. It was, you know, it's a church, which is now a theatre, and it's where they're doing National Theatre Live. So you can see West End productions on the screen there, as well as um, Alan Akebourne. It, there's nowhere else like it on no. the island. They put they did the National Theatre Live with the um football did, play yeah. the other week, and I, I'd been really keen to see it. And it, I think it played in Southampton, and I couldn't go. And my son messaged me to say, "You must get down. They've got it on the, the Apollo Theatre, and there's still tickets." And my wife and I had booked to go to Dottery near Bridport for for a long weekend with some friends. And it was I think it was the Friday and the Saturday. It was the days we were away. Yeah. So uh, it's it's great initiative though. I, I think yeah. doing things like that and. Cine World sometimes do some, but I think getting closer to the people. Oh, yeah, and you can get ice creams, ice creams at the interval. Yes. It does feel like you're going to do the theatre and uh, a very reasonably priced bar. Well, absolutely. I mean, we, we've been to Shankin Theatre for a few events as well recently, yeah. which is the same sort of vibe. I mean, obviously there is a theatre, but again, it's there's a lot of volunteering yeah, going along. Yeah, you've got the Friends of Shankin yes. Theatre, and I've been involved in the Savillards, and my sister have acted on, the, on my kids as well um, in putting on things there. So, yeah, um, there's, there's so many really, really good theatre community um, and performing arts community on the island, and it's not just about singing and dancing and musicals, but things like the Apollo Theatre as well. The Tories even use it for their selection process. Harriet, Harriet, <laughs> Harriet told me the story about how one of the hardest days of her life, and she's done some good stuff, how she had to go and make a speech to the theatre with the other candidates, and then they, they voted while they were there, and wow. she, she, she found quite um, hard, I think. But there we yeah. go. There we go. Fix, it's been great. It's been really, really interesting to talk. Um, we will feature this on the podcast very soon. Whether we can get it out on Vexis may remain to be seen. <laughs> and um, I, 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 I love the pregnant pause in the middle um, when we talked about the MP. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Perhaps we can do this again a little bit nearer to the election as things start to firm up because the podcast doesn't really have to follow any of the media rules about, you know, not going into periods of purdue around voting and stuff like that yeah and it'd be great to maybe even hear from a couple of different 
candidates? Def definitely. Well, I've talked to the other candidates about doing some sort of a round robin. Yeah. Now, they've all been very much up for that. Yeah. So, I mean, it might be that we'd have to have an empty chair, but it would still be a great deal of fun to, to do it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Perhaps yeah. we'll give that a go. Yeah, I've had that on Vexus before. Yes, yes. Whether I can persuade Ian, we'll have to see. <laughs> but we'd certainly do it on the podcast, and that, okay. that would make it a lot freer and easier and less rule bound, probably. Yeah. Very good. Let's leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Well, thank you, Tim and Vic, for you know, another fascinating uh, interview and insight into the key issues that you know, motivate Vic and her, her fellow colleagues in the party. Your, your final thoughts on your meeting with her? I've enjoyed meeting all of the political candidates. We've, I think we've now covered all of the parties, if not all candidates, um, with the exception, exception of the Conservatives. She was... Um, Fascinating individual, um, very strong and articulate on the political items, as you'd expect, and, and her role as local councillor, but also somebody who had, uh, you know, uh, uh, other other interests and activities. And you know, I was left wondering where she found the time. So she's an active member and supporter of the Apollo Theatre, which we talked about. Mm -hmm. She um, works as, as, a, as a lecturer in uh, history, the ancient world and geology on the island. She, she, she leads walks talking about the geology of, of our, our Diamond Isle. Walking and really, talking at the know, same time. Yeah. Absolutely living a... You know, such a varied and interesting life. And as with all the candidates, a really charming and nice person to meet. I think, so, I think it's something you've often said. That what, what is it that motivates people to give up their time, um, certainly in campaigning, but then in the potential of becoming an, an elected representative, be it at a local council level, parish, um, Isle of Wight County Council level, or indeed the big prize of becoming a an MP and going up to that there London, obviously paid and that becomes your job. But um, it, it does seem to be most people seem to be mo that you've spoken to are motivated by the opportunity to do good and to improve. So I think two things: most of them, by and large, are councillors already. Yep. Which is thankless in a way, but of great value to the people that they represent. And the question that, I wouldn't say it's wrong-footed them, but the question has made them think hard and think about their answer is, okay, so what happens if you win the election? If, if the returning officer says, and the winner is, insert name, how's your life going to change? Yeah. And one of the sort of the stumbling blocks in a constituency like ours where the same party has been elected for the last few elections is the, the the opposition believing that they can win and you know that's been there's some interesting answers out there and and hers today you know was realistic but you know you you felt that it would be quite disruptive to a, a really busy lifestyle yeah like the other aspect Sorry, just, just before you go on to the second aspect, yeah. it's like those red wall Tory MPs from the 2019 election who who were stood effectively. They thought they were standing as paper candidates, and they only went and won 
because of um, yeah. the red wall surge to, to conservatives. And um, suddenly these guys that were just expecting to go back to work as normal on the, the Friday morning were busted down to Westminster for photo opportunities. Yeah. We talked a lot about as well about, about sort of the local side of things. Mm-hmm. And I, I was impressed from all of them, by and large, who talked about the level of cooperation amongst the, you know, the progressive candidates working together. On the other hand... Um, and I know that Vix has had a lot of um, uh, challenges on social media about how the progressive vote. Um, so some people's perception is that there should be more tactical voting. So if, if some people would like to see the existing MP removed, you know, you could argue the logical way is for the parties to work together and just put forward a candidate so that the vote doesn't get split through the four, four ways. And, you know, she, she's in, increased her vote at, it, at all of the elections she stood in. Um, and, it, you know, is clearly getting a very credible amount of the populace voting yep, for her. Yep. You know, and, you know, I think we agreed that, you know, it the spirit of democracy is that people should have the different flavours of yeah. political opinion to but vote for. We, we need to but change in purely, the... prag- in purely pragmatic terms, if you just want to get them out, you know, you Band can make together. other arguments. And we need a rebel social- alliance. <laughs> you need, you, but you know what social media is like. If yeah. it's perceived that someone isn't necessarily taking the same view as yourself. So you of know, course, it, the, the... it was quite a tricky one to discuss. The anti-answer to this, of course, is proportional representation. We all know that. Um, but for some reason, the two major parties seem to think it's uh, not in their specific interest because they hand the baton backwards and forwards to each other after 10, 15 years or so of, of each making a mess. We talk, about, we talk about this at some length in the interview. And before I came up to chat with you just now, I was reading in the New European around the um, AFD in Germany, approaching 35% vote in the polls. Now, Germany has an interesting history about um, electing far-right governments, and that's the um, counterweight to why proportional representation has its drawbacks as well as its strengths. Mm, Yes. Mm, I am am a personal... We'll come back to this in another... um, episode I'm sure but I'm drawn by the masks and the fairness of it um, just because people don't hold the same views as I um, I think proportionality is true democracy because everybody's vote counts to a greater or lesser extent the question is how you allocate the power and the decision making authority is 35% enough to give a, an overall majority no so it would be tempered by you know the coalition that would have to be formed with a less far right or a more moderate centrist party perhaps but, but as, as we're saying in you you know it, it's it, it, it everybody would agree with your de- democratic argument but they also tend to go uh when you put the counterside about means, the rise yeah. of the populist right in yeah. europe so who would have thought the dutch would have Gert wilders you know as the elected leader um, from the from the extremities, oh, and he's now struggling to put together a coalition yes. because his views sit outside the day to day norm of and, and, now, and, and the same is in Sweden, the yeah. same yeah. in Sweden, I believe. Yeah. yeah, but of course, Poland have also just had the reverse. They've overturned a, a populist right wing government, and Donald Tusk is now um, premier 
they're leading a more moderate centrist. Uh, but he's struggling to make any headway because of the way the constitution has been changed by the previous government. So, you know, I, I, I don't disagree with you fundamentally and about the point about democracy. I'm just saying beware, because whilst I used to think it was the panacea of all evils, it comes with its own risks. And, yes. you know, the Brexit Party and so forth in the UK have never really gained a, a foothold in yeah. Parliament, but they would, you know, they'd have 10% of the seats yeah. now because they yeah. get 10% of the vote in yeah. previous election. Probably 2019, they got even more. Yeah. I mean, you're right. And we, we, it's probably long overdue a reference back to the Scottish situation and the proportional representation is used to elect the, all the councils and the Holyrood Scottish um, Parliament. Um, and that means that people who lose constituencies automatically win seats because they are on the party list, which is, you know, the proportional formula that is utilized to, to make sure that there is uh, at least a representation approximating to the popular vote. Um, slightly more complex than that, but it, it kind of works. Um, You'd hope also it would increase the turnout, which would be a good thing. Yeah. And it's interesting to see that in the London mayoral elections, they've actually reversed, which used to be single transferable vote, I think, is now back to first past the post for the coming election. Correct. It is. Ooh, interesting. Retrograde. That sounds retrograde. We're going to have to research this for the next episode, I think, just so we can... Yes, we uh, should. Yes, we we should. We should should look at the clock. We should probably start to to wind up now um, for episode four um, and uh, put that to bed and then put ourselves to bed as it's now dragging on into the the, later in the evening on, on Valentine's night. And um, <clears throat> lots of interesting threads to, that we can pull on in future episodes, I think. Yep. Finally, from me, um, we have also t- talked about doing another question and answer yes. um, episode, not necessarily the next time, but in the future. So if anyone has any questions, please use any of the available channels to send those through and we'll make sure that... Um, we cover them. And I've also been thinking, I haven't told Rory this yet, but we ought to have a an Ask Rory feature, which will be sort of our version of an agony aunt, where if you have a, have a problem, personal or otherwise, you um, reach into Rory to access his um, experience and breadth of knowledge. Wisdom. His wisdom, <laughs> wisdom of, wisdom, of yes. the human condition and our social interactions with each other. I, I, I will have advice for every situation. Yes, you put me on the spot, but I'm more than up for it, Tim. You you roll with the punches superbly, Rory. It's something <laughs> that never ceases to impress me. We should We should finish. Yeah, good. Well, uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, uh, you have been listening to Quite Like a Podcast with me, Rory Forbes. And me, Tim Goodman. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. That was Quite Like a Podcast, presented by Rory Forbes and Tim Deadman.